What do you believe? What do you believe? Hello, friends. I am Kent Lapp, and welcome to this episode of the KLP, where it is our goal to spark change, bring hope, and help you navigate the tricky bits in life. We are particularly interested in exploring what various individuals and societies believe, are building, and enjoy, and how that leads to true human flourishing or not. And today is just a fantastic conversation along those exact lines. Today, I'm excited to give you my conversation with Paul Cardall. Paul is a is an, a Dove Award winning uh, pianist, composer, and producer. Paul's music has been streamed over three billion times, and as such, he's one of the highest streamed artists in the world with 30 million monthly listeners and heard in over 100 countries. He's also had 11, not 10, not 9, not 8, 11 number one Billboard albums. And a few years ago, Paul sold his music catalog for more money than anyone has ever been paid for uh, for their music in his genre. But that's not all. Paul was born with half a heart and was recently converted, I guess that's an acceptable way to put it, from his deep and influential Mormon heritage into evangelical Christianity. Check out everything he's doing, including his very own podcast at paulcardall.com. That's C-A-R-D-A-L-L, paulcardall.com. And please subscribe to our show on YouTube if you haven't yet, and hit us up on all the social medias. Simply search the Can't Lap Podcast and hit that follow or subscribe button. And lastly, it would just mean the world to me if you'd go ahead and rate and review the podcasts on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, thank you. Really appreciate that. And with all that, I give you my conversation with Paul Cardall. Please enjoy. Well, hello, Paul. Hey, good to be with you. Yeah, it's great to have you with us. I'm really honored. So I want to start this one a little bit different differently than normal because this this is really remarkable i'm just gonna buzz through a few things and then we're just gonna go back and just talk through that sound good yeah um because i want to hit your story i definitely want to hit your music and i definitely want to hit your faith but i mean they're all kind of interrelated i would have to guess you were born with and by the way you're the expert here so correct me if any of this is wrong but you were born with half a heart You lost a close high school friend that in turn inspired you to play the piano. You um, experienced the death of your brother who, while having a psychiatric breakdown, was tasered by police. Yeah. You experienced what it's like to wrestle with knowing that if you were to live, someone else may die. Um, You dealt with, you know, um, unsurprisingly, PTSD, depression, survivor's guilt. Um, You have experienced a heart transplant. Yep. And you were a Dove Award winning pianist, composer, and producer. Music has been streamed over three, <laughs> three billion times. Yeah. That is so. They tell me here in Nashville gosh. that's a big deal. I, I would just get my head down and independently was working, and people were thumbs upping the music on Pandora and Spotify. And when I came to Nashville a couple of years ago, I thought that was normal. 
I thought everybody was doing that. I don't think everyone's doing no, that. No, no, no. No, I think no. three billion. I don't care where you <laughs> live. That's a big deal. You're one of the highest streamed artists in the world with over 30 million monthly listeners. Your music is heard in over 100 countries. You have 11 number one Billboard albums. And you recently moved away from your Mormon roots. Yeah, that's... Uh, All right, bro, let's that's go. Gonna, that's a series. <laughs> that's a podcast series. Right? Yeah, it really is. <laughs> you don't just walk away. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure. Um, I don't know where we want to jump in. I think maybe your story. Sure. Because that's going to kind of tie it all together. So yeah, I mean, you, you, mentioned, start... you mentioned the half heart and, uh, well, congenital heart disease is the leading cause of infant-related deaths, so it's the number one birth defect. And there are thousands and thousands of kids born every year with deformed hearts, but you never notice or see them unless they have a scar over their chest and they're at the pool and you go, okay, that kid's got heart issues. Mm-hmm. But there's so many parents that deal with knowing from an ultrasound that their child has a deformed heart and it's going to require surgery. And so over the years, as I've interacted with parents, because, you know, being born with only half a heart, I had surgery less than a day old, but I didn't remember any of that, obviously. So my parents would tell me about it. You know, you were supposed to die and you're not supposed to be here and you're a miracle and God's doing something. And so over the years, it's been like, well, how do I, how do I really grasp this biblically? Mm-hmm. Because um, religion has played a huge part in my entire existence. Because when you are told as a kid, you're not gonna probably you're probably not gonna grow up. Mm-hmm. You're not thinking about retirement. You're not thinking about stocks and <laughs> trying to mm-hmm. like find a wife. <laughs> yeah, you're like you know I could be in heaven soon. Yeah, you're thinking about like. How did we get here? What happens after we die? Like the biggest questions of life is what you're thinking about as a kid. That was thrust on me very early. Hmm. And my parents um, in the Mormon faith tradition are extremely optimistic that God is performing miracles, that Christ can heal with enough... I don't want to say work, but if you really study it out and make clear your decisions. He will bless those decisions and a miracle can take place. And my parents were very optimistic, even though my dad's a journalist and has to ask very pessimistic Mm -hmm. questions, which I think contributed to getting the doctors to really make sure they had everything covered. But the only thing I can compare it to really is, um, you know, nowadays moms know that their child's going to have some serious problems. And years ago, I, I was writing this song about Mary, the mother of Jesus. Like, she knew. She had to have known because uh, here is this young girl who would have sat, not where the men sit, mm-hmm. in the synagogue, but she would have overheard Isaiah and all these prophecies and all this discussion about what would happen to who the Messiah is and it would have resonated with her in a way that was like, yeah, you're right. You know, scripture saying broken, bruised, hang on a tree. So 
then she knows who the father is. So she's about to give birth to a child who she knows is going to die. Probably before her. Mm-hmm. I never thought of it like that, man. So parents are experienced this all the time. So we wrote this song called Son of God. And it's through her eyes. And obviously, you know, it's all speculative philosophy mingled with all the scripture. Mm-hmm. But I think it was... She was not somebody who didn't know. I think Mary clearly knew. And so that was kind of like a guideline for helping me understand what my mother must have gone through. Yes. So is this, you said congenital heart disease. Yeah. Lincoln's question on the way here was, were, were, you, were you born with two heart, what did you say, valves? Chambers. chambers. Were you born with two heart chambers as opposed to four? Or I don't know much yes. about the heart. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, exactly. Lincoln. Okay. You can be my doctor if you... <laughs> I'll come to you over your dad because you knew. Yeah, well, I'd definitely go to him over his dad for sure. It's a, yeah, it's a single functioning ventricle. But my arteries, you have two great arteries sending the blood out and bringing the blood back in. They were reversed. They were backwards. So it was... There's like 40,000 different kinds of... Mm deformed hearts Mm -hmm. and a regular cardiologist can't just go in and it's like sending a guy that you know say you install your own sprinkler system you know how Mm -hmm. (laughs) you may hopefully have mapped it out yeah but then you bring a professional in to assess the pressures and try to figure out why a lot of your grass isn't getting green Ah. well he he's a specialist so he comes in and goes okay we need to readjust this readjust this readjust that and that's what a cardiologist does who has pediatric training, so it's congenital cardiology. Gotcha. Now, the surgery at one day old, what was that surgery? Was that a heart transplant? Well, they just, immediately upon uh, being born, I was very blue, so I was a blue baby. I wasn't getting enough oxygen. So they immediately took me to the surgical room, and they just went to open me up to try to figure out, try to figure out what's going on. And so at the time in 1973, very few people survived from any type of heart surgery. Mm. And we wouldn't even have heart surgery if it wasn't for children over at Vanderbilt that uh, there was a, uh, the first, one of the first cardiac surgeons was uh, Alfred Blaylock who came from Vanderbilt and went to John Hopkins. But they started operating on infants and children and that's where we got traditional heart surgery today mm. but yeah they he just went in and rerouted some of the blood so i was still getting i, I was getting about 70 percent sets oxygen levels so i was not ever fully functioning mentally mm-hmm. mm. uh with 100 percent of a computer that processes your blood flow and helps you live and okay so it was like i think i and that's why they tell me i compensated by going into music my brain was looking for a way to function because it wasn't normal in the sense it wasn't getting 100 percent of what a heart can do oh it's okay. getting only half okay so what they did at one day of age was not swapping in a new heart. No, they, they just were rerouted it. Rerouting 
tampering with it, like trying to rearrange things and, and improve it basically. Yeah. So, so then you had that and when did you have your heart transplant then? So the heart transplant was at age 36. So that was 11 years ago. But leading up to that, I had, uh, countless surgeries to correct issues that were evolved out of bad symptoms of just being sick with pneumonia or I see, you know, bronchitis. So the not getting the full oxygen levels, did that all finally go away at the heart transplant or had it gone away even much sooner? Oh no. The, yeah, not until the heart transplant did I start to feel like a Porsche before then I was like, you know, I was driving around grandpa's old truck that really everybody wanted to get rid of, but grandpa, you know, it's grandpa's truck. You, you know, you're always taking it in and it's leaking oil and you're always putting oil in it. So it never needs an oil change because you're just cycling with the oil. Oh my goodness. But, and, and that's what I knew. But okay. I thought everybody felt that way. I see. Sure. You know, but when you're in scouting and you're in, you know, a teenager and they're lining you up to pick teams to play basketball. Yeah. I, I, I was usually the last guy. Okay. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll take him. <laughs> yeah. Cause you had, so if you don't have the right blood oxygen, you would get winded extremely fast. Quickly. You would, yeah. Okay. You wouldn't have endurance. I mean, you wouldn't have any of those things. No. Okay. So then the music to compensate, when did that start? So I had had my third major open heart surgery at 14 and that was a critical moment in my life. Cause that's when I really began to experience God in a profound way because I was mature enough at that point to really rely desperately on him. And so because I had been born with only half a heart and had all these scars, all these surgeries, and I knew the stress my parents had from all the medical bills, the insurance, the it's a lot more complicated back then. And I just saw the way it was just, it was challenging. Um, and then I hadn't, I'd taken piano lessons for like a couple months, but I really did not care much for it. My mom had eight kids and was like, I'm not going to push this. But when I was two years after my third major surgery, a friend of mine who played the piano was killed in a car accident. But the guy was like perfectly healthy. And very talented. So I was trying to figure out like, oh, oh, wait a second, God. How come How come you put me through all this torture mm-hmm. <laughs> to keep me alive? Um, like a parable versus my friend who's perfectly healthy gets hit by a car mm. and dies. Like, like one minute he's here, one minute he's not. Here I am fighting my entire life to live. And I still am. Mm-hmm. And people are just leaving, quitting, giving up, accidents. And it's, so you have these crazy ironies in life. So mm-hmm. I was trying to work it out in my mind. And I went to the piano in my parents' living room and I looked at the piano like it was a puzzle. And my mind was just kind of in that moment of trying to understand life. And so the piano notes, the keys were like, the mysteries of life and Hmm. you had the black and white keys. So there's opposites in everything we do. There's irony in everything, life and death. And so I was trying to work it out and I sat down and I started playing 
three notes and right off the bat for me in that moment I felt this fire flow through me like think of the coldest day of your life and then your mom if you have a really good beautiful relationship with your mom your mom comes in and puts this really warm blanket around you so I felt God tell me everything's okay you felt that three notes in three notes in at age 16? 16. Man. Dude, that is... I mean, that's that's God, right? What? How else can you account for that? It's the Holy Spirit. It, it was. It was... Uh, you know, fast forward <laughs> to illustrate. I've held my heart in my hands after the transplant. You know, they took my heart out. So I've held it. And I've looked at it and I've observed it, how much damage, how much scar tissue the, the leads from, I had a pacemaker for a while. Like most grandparents, I had a pacemaker. And so my heart was just so jacked up and I'm looking at this heart and I'm saying to the lab technician, you know, this is the source of life. This is what pumps life. How in the world did I live on this? And he said, we've been actually talking about it for the last three days. We can't figure it out. Because it was so messed up? It was so messed up. But that's the miracle of who we are in the human mm-hmm. anatomy in the heart. You think of Jesus bleeding at every pore in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then on the cross, he dies of a broken heart. He's crushed because, not because he has to do this, but because he sees everything we experience, Mm -hmm. all our pain. How do you correct and massage back together all of the contention that we create for each other? How do we resolve and smooth out all the bumps within human nature and Mm -hmm. Jesus with his broken heart dies giving us new hearts, Mm -hmm. him new hearts. I mean, it's this whole crazy thing that pretty much has been the subject of my mind since day one, because what else do you think about? Yeah. And out of that pain and questioning and uncertainty and grappling with like the biggest questions of life comes your, your art. You know what I mean? Like that's where your that's where this beauty comes from. We wouldn't have that without what you've gone through. Right. That's, and that's, what's ironic is all the gifts that we each have. They emerge out of, life-changing experiences some of its pain some of its joy we discover what god's already planted in us Mm -hmm. years after he already planted it in us as part of the great story he's trying to tell yeah yeah link and i were just talking about this the other day how it's like one of his questions was well you know kind of like the idea of why does god even allow us the opportunity to sin and why doesn't he just create us and send us straight to heaven. Yeah. And 
And then one of the things that we were talking about is that we are part of God's purpose and plan for everyone that we touch. Like there was someone mowing the yard across the street when we were talking. It's like, we're part of that guy's, God's plan for that guy's life. Yeah. Just because our, our lives are overlapping and he's over there mowing his yard. We're not even talking with him right now, but this is all part of God's plan. And the, and now you have impacted me already. We've only started this conversation. You're impacting Lincoln already. And because what God is doing in your life is now like, we're now part of, you're now part of God's plan and purpose and like how God brings us through life and this information that we run into and the people we meet and all of this, how God moves us all through life in our own individual paths. And yet still it's like collective, like that's already happening. Like right now this is happening. I mean, you went through, I can't even imagine like the pain and suffering and questions and trials and uncertainty. And I mean, though, I mean, wow, that is, and, 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 but then we get to experience the beauty that comes out of that, which is your music, but also like the way your mind works and how you're talking us through this, like, man, there's so much benefit there, but it came at a very big price. Yeah. And you've paid that price and you're still paying it with your, with your health and everything. But what does that feel like to hold? Okay. You held your heart in your hands 11 years ago when Mm -hmm. you got your heart transplant. Mm -hmm. You're holding this heart, which, uh, at the time this is a 36 year old heart, give or take, right? Yep. And it is not looking good at all. Like when you're looking at this thing, are you wondering like, how did this thing even function? Exactly. And you're looking at it in your hands and it, it doesn't look like it should even have brought you to 36 years of age, but there it is. And it did somehow. And it's like, but the heart of all of the organs, I mean, it is, it is, it is like where life comes from, right? Like that's, I mean, you that's can, it. that's it. Like, First, I mean, that's what you, when you go in for an ultrasound, what do you listen for? The heartbeat. Why? It's like the epicenter of life. You just created with God life. Mm-hmm. That's the alarm clock mm. that says, I've put my hand on this and now it's up to you, but I'll be here to guide you and help you. Mm-hmm. You can have me in your life, but the reminder in all of it is Jesus dying. Blood, blood. Mm-hmm. Everything's about the blood. Purchased with the blood, bought with the blood, paid the price with the blood. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be God-related. It can be anything in life. People bleed to preserve the freedoms that we have. People mm-hmm. bled to create the communities we live in, the homes we live in. And we're so comfortable, Mm -hmm. you know, we're so comfortable in the wombs of our mothers and in our world and in our little circle of that, that, you know, it's hard to actually wrap your mind around what's really going on. Yes, that is true. And that's where I think, at least for me, one, Certainly pain and suffering is a good way to kind of force you to step back and reassess and think about the bigger picture. And then for me, another good way for that is like to really to get out in nature. Yeah. Because when you really get out in nature, it's something about it, at least for me, things slow down, thoughts clear. And it's like you kind of get in touch with the biggest questions and concerns of life. But what 
to hold like your heart in your hands, like the very center of life. Yeah. Like, what does that feel like? Were you filled with like gratitude that this thing is beat up, but man, it it kept going for you? Or what is that experience like to hold like the very center of your life kind of in your hands? For me, I, you know, from day one, my parents and the entire community, the Mormon culture was, uh, there's a purpose behind everything. So my mindset was already that this life has a purpose. We're here to honor God by keeping the commandments and prepare for the next life. So it was never, he was always prepared for the next life regardless, but it was more intense with me. So everything you're taught uh, from a religious standpoint, the heart of what really matters most, which is um, to love and to be loved and to forgive and to f- be forgiven. In that moment where I'm holding my heart, all of the theology that I had been taught didn't matter. What mattered was at that moment I knew God was real. I knew God had to exist. Because my surgeon, who was this remarkable man, a Hindu, believed wholeheartedly, no pun intended, that he could work with God and fix this issue. So even he was invoking a higher power to say he needed guidance. You don't just go in and fix. And even he said, you know, we publish all these papers and we get the glory and the accolades and the credit and we always sign our names and were published in the journals of medicine. He goes, but the reality is, is God's feeding us the information. Mm. We're just taking credit for it. So at that moment when I'm holding my heart, it's, this is, this is the nucleus. This is the reality. This is real. This is God Mm -hmm. is, God is real. Mm -hmm. You know, so I've never, I've never had this like, is God real or not? That's always been reality. The journey that's challenging is once you know God, how do you maintain that? Okay. Because you really get to know him yep. when you're constantly on the deathbed. Mm-hmm. So you're wrestling like Jacob with the angel mm-hmm. a lot. You know, what does this mean? Why again? Mm-hmm. How much longer? Mm-hmm. Now, when you say to continue, do you find it then when you're when you are more healthy and you're not on the deathbed that that's where for you it's more challenging to sort of continue that relationship with God. Is that what you meant by that or no? When you're in the trauma, you're in a way physically forced to think. So you're more likely, it's like they always say, God, you know, we pray when we really need God, Mm -hmm. but when we, (laughs) things are going great, we forget to pray. Yes. Yes. So it's this bittersweet, ironic life of when I'm in the hospital, those are the most profound, deeply spiritual experience. So how do you compete with that yeah. on a church level? Mm-hmm. How do you compete with being so close to the veil of death yes. that the spirit and all your senses are enlightened 
enhanced. Um, and then you have to go live. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought you were saying. Yeah, and that's what I was wondering about. Yeah. And in some ways you can't compete with that, right? Because you can't just kind of replicate that. No. You know, at will. That's a very, you can't replicate. I mean, that's a very extreme life or death, literally, situation yeah. that you're in. So you can't be like, well, I'm, I want to have that experience again tomorrow night at 6 p.m. That's just not how that works. But do you know how those experiences come about, though, Kent? Prayer works. Prayer works. There's no question prayer works. Because in the moments when we know somebody is sick, people pray, mm-hmm. right? So we're thinking, pray for so-and-so, pray for so-and-so. So you're, whether you're in your car or going to bed, pray for brother so-and-so or pray for this person or that person. They need help. Well, I always noticed a dramatic shift in my energy after the miracle. So leading up to a surgery, you have people praying. And you don't really know how many, Mm -hmm. but you know because your parent or a friend or your wife will say, hey, so-and-so called, they're praying for you. And you hear that stuff and it's very positive and it's beautiful. But after each time I recovered and the word got out that I, the doctor did a good job and I'd be fine, I literally felt all the weight come back into my body. And oh, wow. in a way, a little bit of depression because all of the positive energy that people had sent to God, to me, yeah, was gone. Stopped, basically. Stopped. Because they're praying for you during the darkest hours. Yeah. And then presumably it tapered and stopped, right? Yeah. And you felt the tapering and stopping of those prayers. Yeah. Do you remember when, you know, in the New Testament, Jesus is even walking to the cross. He has hardly any energy. He's been beaten. And the woman touches the hem of his garment. Mm -hmm. He stops. What does he say? Somebody touched me. Mm -hmm. And then the scripture in some of the translations says, I felt virtue leave me. Mm -hmm. So is Jesus righteousness, which creates the virtue, which is the, like a superhero, the fuel needed to go out and give that to somebody without virtue who needs the virtue, somebody without the moral who needs the morals. It's like you're passing to them Mm -hmm. your breath. Mm -hmm. I'll breathe for you. And then you need to, like he always did, he would retreat to the wilderness to be alone and regroup. So if that's a correct principle and he's resting to regain Mm -hmm. the strength he needs to do what he has to do, it's the same thing with all of us. And when we pray and we send that positive energy, it it works. Mm -hmm. But until you're like, I guess there's a pattern of that in your life. You don't really, some people don't see it or recognize it or feel it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad that you said that because you have a very, to me, and I think to others, they would recognize what you just said as a very strong data point because 
few people have experienced what you've experienced in these deathbed situations. Yeah. And prayer sometimes can feel like it's, it feels like it can be thrown out there very quickly and almost cheapened in a way. Yeah. You know, I'll pray for you. It's very easy to say. And then whether you do or not, it's a separate thing. Um, and, and almost sometimes it can almost feel a little bit like cliche or even like churchy, I feel like, but, but then, so then, so there's kind of that, but then there's the prayer works, you know what I mean? So let's not let prayer get a bad brand or a bad sort of, yeah. um, I don't know, I guess a brand around it, you know, it's just, this, this does not need to be cheapened just because some, and, and let's be honest, some people probably do have a cheap version of prayer, right? There's people yeah. that would go through life and have this kind of willy nilly sort of like, you know, um, shallow view of prayer and it's not our job to go out that in out there and change that for everyone so we can't help that what we can do though is we can we can affect how we think about prayer and how we talk about prayer and how we pray and what we expect out of prayer it just strikes me that what you're saying to me is a very significant data point because for someone to go through what you've gone through and then say hey bro just so you know prayer works and here's how i felt it that's that's a that's a strong, to me, that's a very strong data point. So I'm really glad you shared that. Oh, I appreciate it. The, I think the reason we tend to scoff or laugh at prayer is because we've watched people pray who've hurt us. So I think a lot of people that have grown up in homes where dad has prayed, but then slaps oh, mom. Okay. Mm-hmm. Or you see a pastor pray, but he's busted for something. Mm-hmm. So we don't allow people to pray and be imperfect we expect mm-hmm. people who pray to be perfect sure. because they're talking to god yeah, yeah. But, but you can get the same amount of positive energy doing the chakras because you're a child of god whether you think you're part of this hindu buddhist or muslim world if you're in the act of meditating and sending positive energy mm-hmm. towards another person that's the act of Christ right there. So Timothy Keller would argue you're doing Christian things by having somebody else beside yourself in your mind. Ah, you're doing Christian things without really knowing that you're doing Christian things, right? You exactly. Think you're doing, say, this other thing, and it's actually a Christian thing. Ah, that's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Um, can you, okay, can, you t- let's, can we rewind just a little bit? Where were you born? Salt Lake, Salt Lake City. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's the epicenter of Mormonism, isn't it? Yeah. So my okay. yeah my ancestors left their Brit- the British Isles. They immigrated to uh, the United States in the 1840s because of that new religion, uh, the fastest growing American and the wealthiest American religion um, Was today Mormon- is Mormonism. To- no way. Yeah, yeah. It's the fastest growing American religion. Yes. It's the wealthiest American religion. Oh yeah. They just turned two point, I think it's like 2.5 billion just this year off 100 billion stock investment in Tesla and GameStop. They're very good at um, taking the tithing and investing it and um, having a reserve. The Mormon church invests their tithes almost like a pension fund? Yeah. You can pay in stocks. You can pay in, yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. It's very, it's, it's amazing. Wow. Okay, so you're born in Salt Lake City. Uh-huh. You had 
seven siblings. There was eight of you. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. And um, and you're born into the like your 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 parents are Mormon. When yeah. You're born. Yeah. They're and my parents are incredible. They, uh, you know, that's what you know. You are born in Utah. Mm-hmm. You can travel, but you're still kind of in the mindset of that you are part of this incredible organization. You know, that started in upstate New York. Uh, Joseph Smith was the founder. Joseph Smith, the founder in Palmyra. Palmyra. Yeah, this yeah. is 30 minutes where, from yeah. where Lincoln was born, where we used to live. Oh, no kidding? Where, yeah, I've, where, I've driven where? by in the Finger Lakes area. Oh, okay. Uh, Watkins Glen. Okay. And um, so I've driven by the Joseph Smith plant, uh, not plantation. Farm, farm. House and yeah. Hill Property. And- yeah, 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 you're saying names like I haven't thought of in quite a while. So that was, that he was the founder of Mormonism. Yeah, so this was during, you know, Thomas Jefferson was still alive, John Adams, and Masonry pretty much was the predominant temples that people would attend in the United, in the colonies at the time, and a lot of our founding fathers are Masons, and as part of that, they these were fraternity houses in order to do business that get mm. together. And, and there were a lot of poor people that were not allowed to be Masons. And, um, Joseph's father had been kicked out of the Mason lodge. And as part of the process, um, wanted to be accepted and included. The family wanted to be accepted and included. They were very poor, but he, 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 he said that he, was discouraged by all the different religions and went into a grove of trees where he prayed and claimed he saw God the Father and Jesus as separate beings. There's several different accounts. So then he would go on and create uh, Mormonism as a contemporary of Alexander Campbell, who at the same time was creating the Church of Christ. Is there a tie between Mormonism and the Church of Christ to this day, or no? The only tie is that when Joseph and his followers left to go to Kirtland, Ohio, they left because Sidney Rigdon, who was a pastor for the Church of Christ and a a friend of Alexander Campbell, had had an argument with Alexander and took 5,000 of his followers and converted them all to Mormonism, because then... The Mormons moved to Kirtland, Ohio, where they then started, uh, continued with the movement. Mm. And so they were contemporaries of Alexander, but Alexander was a critic um, trying to point out that the Book of Mormon was not a biblical document, that it was, it was not what, it, what they were promoting and telling people it was. So... Um, but my, my, my ancestors, uh, pretty much one of them was very involved from the beginning and became the third president of the Mormon church. One of your ancestors? Yeah, John Taylor. Oh, wow. He's a remarkable... Like how far back is this? So 1850... Well, in 1854... In 1854, he met my great-great-great-great-great-grandmother. He was a 54-year-old apostle, and she was a 19-year-old girl and became his eighth wife. No way. And took her to Salt Lake. 
And so I wouldn't be here without polygamy. Wow. Yeah. By the way, did I, someone said recently whether this is true, and I don't know, that polygamy is not um, co- as common with the Mormons anymore? No, because in order to become a state, the state of Utah needed to uh, live the laws of the land. And so the president of the church at that time got a revelation from God to stop polygamy. So they stopped living it, uh, the body of the church, but then there were breakoffs. So today you have fundamental Mormon groups all over the place mm-hmm. that continue to live the practice, believe it's an eternal principle, believe that God is a polygamist, believe that, okay. you know, this is why Jesus had so many women around. Mm. So there's all these ideas and theories and it all stems out of that movement. You're saying some of the fundamental fundamentalist Mormons still practice polygamy, yes. but mainstream Mormonism no. does not practice polygamy? When did that end? So in 1893, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, to distinguish from the Mormon fundamentalists and the reorganized, there's all these, so many breakoffs. Mm. You know, anytime there's a successful religious plant, there's going to be breakoffs when the fa- founder dies. And um, so there were a ton of breakoffs, but the church today is very, um, it's a very corporate structured church, very tight knit community. Everyone looks after each other. You're not gonna find a Mormon on the surface who doesn't treat you like a million bucks. Hmm. Every person you meet that's LDS will want to have a conversation with you to encourage you, but the bottom line is they want you to get in. Okay. To get in. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we all want people to come and partake of what we think is sure. real and true. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, it's yeah. um that is how we I was born in the Mennonite tradition and my oh, wife okay. was born Amish. And um a while ago, someone asked me to put together, this was several years ago, put together some several thoughts on the Mennonite tradition because they want to kind of learn from it. Yeah. And that was the first time that I was like, when I was doing some research for that, I saw some similarities between Mormons and Mennonites with just some of the family values and yeah. culture. Like even you just saying like, you walk up to a Mormon person, they're probably going to be nice on the surface and talk to you and be nice to you. Mm-hmm. Mennonites, same way. Very nice people. Oh, yeah. Um, what are some of the... Oh, well, let me ask this first. Okay. So you're saying mainstream Mormonism, though, they haven't been practicing polygamy since like the late 1800s, early 1900s. No, they still believe in the principle that um, when you get married, you don't marry till death do you part. Okay. You marry in a temple. Mm-hmm because they believe in the extenuation of the law of Moses by having temples. So even though Jesus fulfilled the law, they're still building temples and believe you have to do rituals. Mm. Um, different kinds, but you have to do rituals. And you get married forever. Like, it's it's literally like Disney, you know, it's a happily ever after. You are going to be with that person forever. So in a way, though, it's very powerful language because when you go into a marriage, you're not just thinking... Uh, until retirement and then we die and we'll be friends in heaven. It's, no, no, no. We are partners for eternity. Oh, I see. Okay. So you're building your kingdom. Your kingdom, which is part of God's kingdom. 
So it's a you're building the family kingdom almost like you, your that you and your spouse are building this kingdom together that's inside of God's kingdom, and that little family kingdom is going to continue into eternity as well. Yes, it's a downline. It's a downline See, patriarchal order, which lends to the significance of and lends meaning to that marriage and what you're building with your family. There's eternal value there. Aha, that's interesting. That makes sense. Yeah, so it's so family driven because the very foundation of it is that God the Father has a wife, a mother. So we have heavenly parents. And that we actually lived with them before, but we had some, we didn't have something that they had. We didn't have a body. So in Mormonism, you're taught you've, we helped create the earth. And then those that chose to support Jesus as the firstborn son who would pay the price because we'd all make mistakes, um, we would come to the earth get our bodies, learn how to control them because mm-hmm. we never had them before, hmm. you know, and participate in ordinances as a means of showing our commitment to God. But we would start on our own process of becoming like God. We would never become God. Sure. But becoming like God, just the way your son will uh-huh. grow up and become a man like you. And Interesting. Okay. The core tenets of the Mormon faith, then, would they believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? Do they believe in the Trinity? So, but they're three separate means because you have heavenly parents, okay? So the Father, it's like a presidency. It's like a. Okay. It's, so it's like a pastor with two counselors that are equal. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, they would believe in creation, some form of creation. Mm-hmm. Are they all like New Earth or some Old Earth, or is there a mix, or they take a hard stance on that? No, if, if it's very smart. Anything that is true, there's a quote from one of the founders, the second, second prophet. Anything that is true belongs to Mormonism because it comes from God. Okay. So when we scientifically come to a point and find that there's a something that needs to be Correct, like you know, when Galileo told the Catholic Church that the sun does not revolve around the earth, mm. they excommunicated him, but the earth revolves around the sun, they excommunicated him. So, a thousand years later, there's a letter by Pope John Paul II in the Vatican Museum that shows an apology, and instead, and even though they excommunicated him, they venerated him to a saint. Mm. So, just to be cautious in the future, um, so if there's anything that is true, it belongs to Mormonism. So when it comes to creation, seven days to create the earth, it's seven periods of time. We don't know God's timing. We know our timing because the earth spins Mm -hmm. on its axis, Mm -hmm. you know. Have we gone way too C.S. Lewis in this conversation? Have we gone like down this... No, absolutely crazy not. path. Okay, dude, I'll pull so, us back if we get down crazy train, man. Okay. I'm I'm fascinated by this, honestly. Okay. Um. All right, and then is there a what else would you say is like core tenets of the Mormon faith? I really don't know much about it. It sounds like they believe in Jesus Christ, yeah, coming to Earth. Yes, but they so it's an open canon. So it didn't end with the Bible. Okay. The law and the prophets was fulfilled, but God continues to have 
prophets to guide us mm -hmm. in these last days because mm -hmm. we need someone to distinguish between what's truly right and what's truly wrong. There's a lot of voices. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's very comforting mm -hmm. when you're in it and you go, okay, you know, after I turn off Fox News and CNN, I can just find out what the monthly message is and know that's what I'm supposed to be I see. Sure. Thinking. There's a stability to that. Very stable. Yep. And it's an organized community. Everyone's got your back. Yes. The community thing has come up before. I was talking with someone in Austin, Ariel Isaac Norman. She was a Mormon, and she was saying that she's left it, but in her opinion, this is one way where the Protestant church at large has kind of gone wrong, which is basically that her, her thought was that the general evangelical Protestant church doesn't require enough of people. Like, it's just come to church when you want to or come every Sunday. That's even better. But that's about it, you know, and that's a very big blanket statement. It's not true of a lot of churches. But um, her point was, though, that the Mormons require a lot of you, and so it's a commitment, and then you have this really close-knit, tight-knit community as a byproduct of that. And you can travel into different parts of the country, and you might know Mormons here and there, kind of scattered about. So, um, all right, so you are you were in that for a good number of years, up until last year, you said a year ago? Yeah, so I mean, it's... What, what it's, was the big thing that caused you to change? Or things? Well, 17 years ago... I fell in love with Christian music and I was listening to Christian music and I would feel things I hadn't felt in Mormonism and I was learning things that I didn't agree with but I liked what I was hearing and so whether it was Michael W. Smith or um, you know there were a couple bands like uh, even when Matt Marr was starting and like uh, Leland. Oh, I forgot. I, forgot. I kind of yeah. forgot about Leland. Yeah, Leland. Uh, what he was saying about love and love is on the move. And I started to actually realize that when we say know the truth and the truth shall set you free, the truth is Jesus. Know Jesus. He's going to set you free. Um, love one another, meaning love like Jesus. Jesus is love. So there's this idea that of love and acceptance which I pretty much just say it's Jesus and acceptance. Um, where there's love, I mean, that's Jesus taught what love is. He is love. Mm -hmm. He is the very act of love. And so um, I always had a strong love for Jesus and a relationship with Jesus. But in my world, and this isn't the same for every LDS person, but I always felt like he was a third-party administrator. He was there to administer the ordinance necessary for me to be saved, which was he needed to die. Mm -hmm. So he was an organ donor. Mm -hmm. But he wasn't my God. He was my God. But he was the son of the Father. So even, even in Christianity, when we have these conversations about the Trinity, I've yet to meet anybody who can really simplify it and explain the character of God. I've never heard anyone perfectly explain it to where anyone could understand it. Because mm -hmm. it's, you know, you can talk about a triangle mm -hmm. and you can draw all these patterns and everything, but 
for me, I had my heavenly father mm-hmm. and I would pray to him through Jesus because you, that's how you get to the father is through okay. Jesus. Mm-hmm. So right off the bat, when you say, come to the father in my name, Jesus has elevated the father. Mm. So how am I, so why wouldn't I elevate the father above Jesus? Mm-hmm. But then Christians argue, well, Jesus is the father and you have to elevate Jesus just as the father. Mm-hmm. So it's this back and forth mm-hmm. of who's in charge. Sure. <laughs> and then the Holy Spirit is there to make us all feel great. Yeah. So the Holy Spirit comes in to remind us it doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit comes in to go, well, what about me? Uh-huh. <laughs> so you have these three competing gold medalists, mm-hmm. but we've made them bronze and silver. Mm-hmm. And everyone has a favorite. Oh, I like the Holy Spirit. Oh, I like Jesus. Oh, I like, you know, like my father will say to me these days, I'm glad that you found this incredible relationship with Jesus and that you love Jesus. Mm. You know, but he's the one that taught me. Because I remember there was a debate in Sunday school when I was a teenager because the stake president, who's like the archdiocese, the archbishop, local leader in charge of 10,000 people, a bunch of different chapels. He started teaching that we're only supposed to worship the father, not worship Jesus. Mm. We worship the father through Jesus. So my dad goes, I don't think so. See, in, in, in Mormonism, everybody has an opinion mm-hmm. and can express the opinion. Everyone's a teacher. Everyone's a counselor. I was made a, a deacon and I got the priesthood when I was 12. Oh, wow. I became a, an elder, a high priest at age 18. And then my, so, you know, the TJ Timms and the Timothy Kellers, I, I did everything to become that. Oh, wow. In Mormonism. So I had all those positions, responsibilities over congregations. So to go from having a congregation, a full congregation, managing the dialogue and controlling the dialogue to where now I'm just like, sitting back and observing and taking all it all in, trying to learn and understand. But it was little things like that. Who do I worship? Mm-hmm. But then I have to tell you, the heart of it was, I got a copy of the message. And then I started reading the NASB. Because in Mormonism, you only do the King James Version. Oh, really? And the King James Version has commentary from all the Mormon scholars. Okay. So they'll tell you what it means mm. and how it cross-references with the Book of Mormon mm. and the revelations given through the prophets. So I'm not learning the Bible the way everyone else does. I'm learning the Mormon perspective of the Bible. Yes. Yep, yep. So I would read Paul and go, ah, he was just a crazy guy that didn't like women and because he would say things like, you know, I can get stuff done <laughs> without being married faster than most. And yep. Paul was, and that was counter to the culture of Mormonism. Yeah. And Paul Very. argued with Peter, mm. the apostles would argue. And then Peter's like, you know, sending Paul out and Silas out. And Paul's like, fine, I'm going to preach to the, to the Gentiles. Yep. You can have the Jews. I'll teach the Gentiles. I'm not circumcising anybody. You want to do that? Go right at it, Peter. I'm not doing that. But yeah. he 
circumcises Timothy. He's like, oh, man. I don't blame him. Who wants to circumcise your companion before you have to go teach these people? (laughs) You know, like, can we be done with this stuff already? Yeah. So, but, but those very things of all the things that had to be done. So in Mormonism, Peter is trying to continue the law of Moses because he's still not Mm -hmm. waking up. And Jesus has been so patient. Mm -hmm. So he calls Paul to come in and then Timothy and all these other guys to basically reinforce I crushed it I killed it I won we don't have to do that anymore mm-hmm. and so that's the internal conflict but what it came down to was I read the New Testament and Jesus where he says I have come not to destroy the law to, but, but to fulfill it mm-hmm. and the and the prophets. I hadn't been taught that, you know, I knew God made a covenant with Abraham. Mm-hmm. And I knew that Abraham and his posterity would become the tribes, right? So you have 12 tribes through Jacob, mm-hmm. the grandson of Abraham. Jacob's name was changed to Israel because God made a covenant with Jacob that through those sons, Jesus would come and he had his promise that they would be his people. Mm -hmm. So God sends prophets to work with them and work with them and work with them. But every time the prophets were sent, the prophets tried to get them to make covenants, but everyone broke their covenants. Mm -hmm. In Mormonism, the most important thing is keeping covenants. Oh, really? So the president of the church will always say, are you on the covenant path? Have you kept your covenants? Because integrity is the most important thing we have. Okay. But has anyone ever really, I mean, can a person keep their covenants? Right. Yeah. Jesus can. Yeah. But I was supposed to keep covenants. So when you break them, how, how big do you feel? Mm-hmm. So you need the church. You need the church to facilitate that oh, shame and guilt. I see. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because I didn't know that I could work it out with Jesus. Uh huh. Hmm. I didn't know Jesus was my high priest. I sure. thought I needed to go to my high priest. I didn't know Jesus was also my prophet. I needed to go to my prophet. I didn't know Jesus was the temple. I needed to be worthy to qualify, sit down with my high priest and bishop, and and go through a series of questions like I'm joining the getting a job to see and they're going to judge to determine whether or not I feel worthy. Mm. And if I feel worthy, I could qualify and go into the temple and feel God's spirit. Yeah. But I didn't know I could just go to Jesus. Okay. I didn't know I was in Jesus and Jesus in me. I didn't know I was a stone Mm -hmm. and that he was using me as a stone to build. He's a carpenter. Yep. So like all these things in the New Testament, and you have to understand, I took four years of seminary as a high school kid. We studied. There's a one hour set aside in Utah. You, you walk across the street, so it's not church and state, and you go to Bible class, and you study the Book of Mormon, you study the Bible, you study the revelations of the prophets, and you study the Book of Abraham, 
which was, anyways, that's all. <laughs> that's a rabbit hole. And then, but so you study all these things, and I loved it. Oh my gosh, I was. But that's. I thought this is how everybody needs to think. Yeah, you were getting like the answers. Yeah, because I'm part of this amazing culture. Mm-hmm. We had BYU, you know, and a BYU football player would get recruited to the Panthers. So we got a Mormon on the Panthers. We have a Mormon, oh, okay. Steve Young. We have Steve Young over here on the 49ers. We've got Donnie and Marie. We've got all these. So we love our celebrities when uh-huh. people you know, are starting to get out there. Mitt Romney. Yeah, I was going to bring him up. Yeah. You know, but if you, if you get into the business world, you'll see that most of the CEOs and the Big movers and shakers, they're all tied to the LDS church. Wow. Okay. A couple of things. One is that idea of needing the church to help you through your sin and how shame and guilt can sometimes tie into that. And that seems to me like a necessary staple for a religion, right? Like there's a few things you got to have if you're going to have like a Mormon religion or different tradition. There's and, and, that seems to be a common denominator. Let me put it that way, you know, um, because I think we could look at others and we'd find that as well. I mean, you know, you can look at the Catholic Church and they need they have confession and all that. Like yeah. you need the church to help you through your sin. And it's what's interesting about that is like we kind of do need each other to help each other through our sin. Right. But that there's a difference, though, between like helping each other through our sin and walking through this life together and you needing to go through like these steps to church to get to Jesus, to get to God and so forth. But I wanted to ask you, um, I'm curious, what what might be some reason, why do you think it's the fa- one of the fastest or the fastest growing religion in America, and why, what's behind the, the wealth? Like, what do they believe to be true, or what are their habits that is causing them to be inordinately wealthy? Well, in order to qualify for the temple, you have to be a full tithe payer. So to get into the lodge... Um, the temple where the saving ordinances are the highest level of salvation is only attainable by participating in those ordinances and when you go you're pretty much anointed a king to be a partaker like after the book of revelation king of kings lord of lords jesus is king of kings so you become a king symbolically because Jesus is then the king of you. Mm. So you're being anointed to become like God. You can't get any better in a multi-level marketing downline situation than knowing that everyone in the community supports the idea of you becoming like Father in heaven. Hmm. You and your spouse will grow and become God. Not our Father, mm-hmm. but like God. Mm-hmm. But you have to pay for to get to there? Well, you have to pay your tithing. I mean, it's a commandment in the law of Moses to pay tithing. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the last book of Malachi. Will a man rob God? Mm-hmm. Except he have robbed me. Uh, so you pay 10%, the tithe. Okay. And... How do they know you pay 10%? Do they look at your income or do you... It's, not, it's integrity. Okay. Okay. I you don't feel good if you don't. Sure. I mean, there, there's already enough pressure to 
do everything right. Like, you know, if you, if you have pornography issues, you have to go to your bishop mm-hmm. and confess and talk to him um, because they have to work with you. And the idea is to have them work with you. But nobody's trained. We're all, we have our jobs and then we're in charge. Okay. So it's a, yeah. lay, it's a lay ministry. Same with the Mennonites, yeah. 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 So the bishop is not trained on how to help you with your masturbation problem. Uh-huh. Or your addictions. But he's the guy you got to go to. Yeah, because that's the process. And he'll... Sure. He'll point you to the Savior and scriptures and scriptures you can read. And mm-hmm. a good bishop will encourage you to get therapy or be part of the 12-step program. Okay. You know. So whereas, there's a place for therapy, too? Yeah. Okay. That's why I was, like, blown away, like, when Emmanuel Nashville has this men's gathering. And I go for the first time, and I'm new, and everyone's confessing their sins to each other. And I was like, this is strange. Yeah. Because... You have to understand that, like, I was what's called an elders quorum president. So I was in charge of all the elders. And I, my uh, job uh, was... Of where? Of your... Uh, this was back in Utah when I was part sure, of the Sure, but when church. you say all the elders, you mean all the elders nationwide or all the elders... Um, all the elders within a geographical location. Ah, okay. You were in you, charge of the elders in that geographical location. Yeah. You don't pick your church. You go based on where you live. Okay. Mm-hmm. You choose your church... It's called a ward. It's kind of set up like the British uh, terminology, okay. parliament, mm-hmm. you know, the hospital wards, because mm-hmm. everyone's sick and needs a doctor. Mm-hmm. Everyone needs Jesus, so you're in the ward. I see. So um, it's better than parish, because parish sounds like you're perishing. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so you're in this ward, and you've got about 300 people. Uh, I had about 75 men families that I was responsible for and I always wanted them to engage in conversation in our small group of confession and encouraging each other and talking about addiction and and Mm -hmm. things that were keeping but nobody ever wanted to talk to it no one ever wanted to get into it Mm -hmm. everything was so surface it was like you know I don't want to if I tell you this, then you know this, and I know that, and it's like... Right, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah. Is it because in that culture, it's very important important to put your best foot forward and present that's the actually best one of the, version of yourself? Yeah, F- foot forward, best foot forward, or faith in every footstep, that's actually a Mormon phrase. Like, yeah, you okay. want to show up. Okay, yes, okay. Yeah. This is another thing that's very common with the Amish and Mennonites, and it's, I mean, look, it's its not all wrong. I mean, it's just, but it's the the idea of, um, like, if someone's going to come over to your house, and you're going to mow the yard, you're going to weed whack everything, you're going to blow the driveway, you're going to clean the house, you're going to house clean the house, actually. Yeah. You're going to all, you know, everything is, you, you are going to do your best to put your your best foot forward and present the best version of yourself. Um and again, it's, it's not all wrong, but um, there is, though, this place of, and I think this is a grace on Emmanuel, though, this this place for honesty, which I think is lacking in general cu- church culture. Yeah. In in general, you yeah. know, it doesn't really matter the the, the denomination. So the um, but the fastest growing, what's behind that? Are they are they converting a lot, or is it just they have a Education. lot of large families? So education, because the, ch- the church has a university, Brigham Young University, and they bring in uh, 
converts from third world countries oh. and they educate them. Aha, uh-huh. okay. Then they go home and become powerful. Because they have, okay. They have an education and connections. I see. They go back to their third world country, but now they haven't. Is that right? Sometimes? Yeah. yeah. A lot of times? Yeah. Most okay. people, it, BYU is, it's it's cheap to get into if you're a Mormon. It's very difficult. I think it's like an Ivy League college okay. without being considered one of the Ivy Leagues. I it's, see. It's that difficult and challenging. Okay. So you come into this. And you get a network, you get a community, you get a, you get a lot of certainty. Yes. And then you, and aha, uh-huh, that makes sense. Okay. What about the wealth? What's behind that? Is it the family values? And that just so happens to generate the wealth. Is it the family values and the integrity and the hard work? Is it, is it the idea that you're building for eternity? You and your spouse or spouse, I guess maybe not so much spouses, but you and your spouse and your family, you're going to be together forever and you're building this little kingdom inside God's kingdom. And so there's a real high value on work. And if you pair that with integrity, that is, is that where the wealth comes from? Well, one of the promises you make is that you'll donate your time and talents to build the church up. So you're going to give, uh, people die and they leave their inheritance to the church instead of their children. Oh. That's not every case, mm-hmm. but you want to give to the Lord everything you can. But it's not a, it's not like a Joel Osteen, church where they smile and say you're going to be blessed if you bless us sure no it's just common knowledge you work hard and you you pay your tithing but the very fact i was taught that has made me a much better controller of my finances yeah makes sense so i'm going to become wealthy and prosper because i pay tithing Mm -hmm. because i've disciplined my mind to go I'm going to every month, and my grandpa would always say this, pay the Lord, pay yourself, and then take care of everything else. Mm-hmm. So if you're paying the Lord, you're going into business with him. And all you're putting in is 10% every month, but he's giving you 110 back. Mm. You know, you're breathing. Mm-hmm. So you're entrusting his living apostles okay. with your finances. Yep. And so it's becoming very wealthy because you have a network of people doing incredible things. I mean, um, like I'm part of this incredible organization called doTERRA. I'm one of their performance advocates. And doTERRA is an essential oil. Yeah, I've heard of it. Four billion. The company is worth like four billion or something. And they've got four million um, salespeople and majority of them are all Mormons. Oh, wow. You know, um, Mormons serve missions. So at age, age, uh, now we can move on from this because mm-hmm. at age 18, you don't go to college. You, you forego college and you go serve a ministry, a mission for a year and a half to two years. Mennonites do the exact same thing. And by doing that, you're not only deepening your roots, and commitment to the church. You're going out in the world with that mindset. Yeah. So you're not being influenced by the world to think yes. for yourself. That's right. Yeah. You're still going yeah. out thinking for them mm-hmm. instead of learning. Yeah. You're teaching. You're not learning. That's right. You're teaching each other and learning from that and your mission president and whatever God is teaching you. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, 
So you're recruiting. Mm-hmm. And you're young and vulnerable and amazing and people love you and they, they care about you because you should be in college having a good time. But no, you're out. Yeah. So they respect you. They bring you in. Mm-hmm. And it's the best thing in the world. I think anyone, when you graduate from high school, should do a, a mission of some kind, whether it's Peace Corps, mm-hmm. military. You need to forego yourself mm-hmm. and plant yourself in the hearts of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, but by doing that, you've already learned how to sell. Yeah, 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 makes sense. Okay, you did not, you were not a musician, you were not in music until 16 years of age, is that right? Yeah. Okay, so 16, your close friend dies. He was a piano player. Yeah. He was healthy, car wreck, dies um, unexpectedly. You played three keys, like pressed one, press another, and press a third one, and just felt like the presence of God there, almost like a calling, almost like a like you I, were. I what didn't you know were, it was calling. I just that was just for me. Okay, that just was for me. I just I it took a couple hours, but I wrote my first song. Right, your first time on the piano. Yeah. Well, I I sat there before noodling, but I didn't really understand it. I'd taken piano lessons. I'd figured out how to curve my fingers correctly so my aunt wasn't mad at me. And <laughs> what do you mean your hand wasn't mad? Well, at you me? have to curl hands the way you play the piano. So the, okay. the teachers will always get you to like put your fingers a certain way so that you can reach chords. Oh, okay. And and so that for me was like what I remembered. I didn't remember anything else. Okay. Just I had to keep my fingers perfect. Okay. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's why when I play those notes and, and a melody just comes out, it's like, but I could remember. So I started to remember everything I was playing that was actually pretty. Okay. Is this because you have a really good memory or something about music? It resonated My wife with... would love me to have a good, <laughs> okay. good memory. So it's, so it's not necessarily that. It's just something about your mind. It's the way you're built and music. There was yeah. just a resonance there. It sort of surprises me that it took until 16 to stumble upon that residence. Have you ever thought about that? To be that good? Well, to I be as good as you are and really not have a close connection with music? Or maybe you did until you're 16. God, God needed to teach me something then. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have understood the lesson earlier. Mm, okay. Okay, so how did your music career then go from 16 piano to... I mean, to, to now, I mean, it's, 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 it's remarkable. I mean, it's almost unbelievable. It's been crazy. It's been amazing. I, I, but after I, that I wrote that song, I shared it with his, my friend's parents and they invited the neighbors over and then they said, invited more neighbors over. So I was actually getting asked to play it. This was the first song you ever wrote? Uh-huh. Was it for your friend? I think we met. I'd written it about my friend. You yeah, did? Okay. Just, just, and mom, the mom found out that I'd written a song about him. Mm. she was devastated of the loss so I went over there and played and it was in that moment that I recognized my music helps people deal with loss help people heal if you have anxiety or depression or grief it's an ailment because it immediately helps you feel the love of God okay this was the first song you ever wrote and did that and, and your music has done that since yeah 
Yeah, that's pretty much, I mean, I'll get daily emails from a mom or somebody who's lost somebody or going through cancer or somebody who just said, hey, I, I just have had a little bit of stress and thank you. You, you know, you went right out the door oh, when wow. I started listening. Wow. And, uh, but I mean, really, it was just a, I was just trying to help people feel God. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, a year later, I, I had written a concerto to perform in the high school thing. And then I got asked to play in a restaurant. I just had to know happy birthday. You know, so I was getting paid to play and tips. And so I made a cassette. Uh, you know what a cassette is? He has no <laughs> idea. It's before the Frisbee. No. Yeah, he barely knows what a CD is. Probably. Yeah, you take your pencil, put some paper around it, and you can rewind it. And you can hear the song again. Yeah. But the cassette, <laughs> yeah. So I had a cassette, and I had a tip jar, and the internet happened, and I started getting everyone's uh, mailing email. So I just kept everyone's email, and then I, every time, and then I earned enough money to make another record. So I let everybody know, and that kind of fueled everything, and that's how it's been for the last, tw- you know, some twenty years until I sold my catalog three years ago to Anthem Entertainment here in Nashville. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, it's it You sold cool. your entire t- catalog up until that point? Yeah. Now, the way that that works, you can keep writing, you can keep creating since then, and they don't necessarily own that, correct? Right. Okay. When you sell a catalog, is it just they pay you and you're done, or they pay you and they have the rights to it, but you still make a little royalty, or does that all depend on the deal? Depends on the deal. Okay. So that song is real estate, and yeah. it has value. Yeah. And it increases in value if it streams. Okay, streams as opposed to playing on the radio. If you or, play, well, it's a whole. That's a whole other. Okay, it, it, but dynamic. your point was it increases in value if people are listening to it. Yeah, is that what you're saying? Yeah, okay. because you remember the old song, "Put Another Dime in the Jukebox." Mm-hmm. So that was every time you put another dime in the guy that owns the jukebox, and those mm-hmm. records would make money. Mm-hmm. Was the artist getting money? Little tiny bit. Mm. But we're now in a system where every time you stream a song, you're paying that artist and everybody who's invested in that artist. Yes. So it accumulates wealth. And when you have a certain amount of streams, the lawyers start knocking on your door because they want to sell it Mm -hmm. and make some money for themselves. Mm -hmm. So when I came to Nashville three years ago, um, there were a lot of those guys. Mm. And we ended up putting a value at the catalog of what it would earn mm-hmm. over a certain amount of years. And then they wrote me a check and I gave them all the, all the rights and said, yeah, have fun. All the rights for everything that you created basically up until that point? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it's completely out of my hands. Yeah. And um, I, w- you know... I- Obviously, I'm not going to ask you the amount, but it would be safe to say, based on what little I know, which the music industry is so complicated, but it's like I have a hard time understanding it. But I understand selling catalogs of music. Yeah, it would be safe to say you did really well on that, right? Is that an I was statement? I was amazed. It was the biggest piano catalog offer in the history of music. So we 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 did better than a lot of the competitors that I've had over the years. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah, man. it's been 
Wow. It's been awesome. Does that, <laughs> I would think. I mean, does it ever sink in for you? Or like, I, well, that's a big deal, I man. Paid, well, I paid tithing to the LDS church. Did you really? I did. Do they pay you in and one my wife's check not or they Mormon. pay you over time? Oh, yeah? So she's like, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm like, I got to go to heaven. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, and you're coming with me. <laughs> I don't want another wife. I just want you. So yeah. <laughs> maybe that's why I have to get out. <laughs> um, how does that work, though, if she's not Mormon? did How long were you married? Uh, well, you were. You were married yeah, I when mean, you were Mormon, right? Yeah. So I did the whole... And that's part of the, that's part of the process. It, when you have a divorce... It's hard to be in a in an organized legalistic system that requires a lot of accountability. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I do love the accountability that the church has. I think it's brilliant, um, but it's not for everybody. Mm-hmm. And I was one that just struggled because when you get divorced, even if you feel led to do it, which sounds so contradictory. But when you know circumstances and situations, there are moments where a couple can go, look, I think we've, uh, we've done everything we're mm-hmm. supposed to do. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, that's, that, it's very difficult to be divorced or have any sin in your life that's, you know, major sin mm-hmm. in that dynamic. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know? Now, how does that work if you're a Mormon, you're married to someone who's not like it, it, it's not supposed it's, you know, it's taboo like any religion. I mean, okay. Got it. Okay. Catholic's supposed to marry a Catholic, you know, I see. Yeah. And my wife was, uh, when I met her, I was on a cruise to the Holy land. I was just, uh, on one of those celebrity draw cruises. So okay. I had a bunch of old people from Idaho that had never been out of Idaho and, all LDS and wonderful people, amazing people. And I just happened to be on the same ship that my wife was on with her mom. Mm-hmm. And she just left California where she was working for Rick Warren, uh, Saddleback Church's prophet, mm-hmm. president, leader. I mm-hmm. wouldn't say prophet, but anyone who has a testimony of Christ, that's the spirit of prophecy. Mm-hmm. So you could say he's a prophet. But, but uh, So she comes into it from a very... Catholic upbringing, strong Catholic, private okay. Catholic school, and then lived in New York. 9-11 happened, and she went to California, became on staff at Saddleback. So that was kind of my introduction to the whole evangelical. Oh, I see. Southern Baptist, non-denominational, whatever. I think they're still undecided. I don't know what's going on there. but Saddleback <laughs> isn't Southern Baptist, are they? Or are they? Yeah, Rick Warren was. Really? Yeah, he was a Southern Baptist. No way. I didn't know that. I'm surprised to hear that, actually. I don't know why I'm surprised, I guess. I just didn't know that. Because it's not in the... Because he's very... (laughs) (laughs) Christ-like. I don't actually know a ton about Rick Warren. He did write The Purpose Driven Life, right? Biggest selling book next to the Bible. Really? Yeah, in Christianity, yeah. Wow. Well, in Christianity or in period? I think in Christianity. Okay. Hey, I, I'm not I, I shocked to hear that. I know it was super popular. Maybe still. I mean, I know how many Book of Mormons I gave away. So, I mean, maybe yep. they're just not counting that. Maybe not. <laughs> okay. So now, are you still writing and producing 
And I have to think it's less because you really have to and more just because you love it or you need to do something with your time or what? I, well, what is your, I think what is it's... Your, what does your day-to-day look like now? Well, it's, it's, it's swamped. It's, uh, I'm actually doing more writing and more um, things that I ever thought I, I would do. And part of that was coming to Nashville. I was going to retire and just just kind of keep trying to convince my wife to become a Mormon. Okay. And I was, we were led to come to Nashville and I mean, that's a whole nother story, but I mean, I was, we were led to come here from where Salt Lake city. Oh, he was still there. Okay. I, I took her out there, you know, and she loved it and it was challenging for her because I wanted her at church and she wanted to not be there. And mm-hmm. so I'd go to mass with her and, She'd come to the worship with me called Sacrament because you take communion every week. And um, it was beautiful, but we were in my world. Mm-hmm. And so we needed, I think God needed to lead us somewhere where we didn't know anybody. Okay. Okay. Did you not know people in Nashville? One person. No way. That's it. And when did you move here? Uh, well, we moved here three years, but we've been here four years. Okay. So we were doing back and forth. Okay. We moved here in 2014 or 13. Yeah. Didn't know anyone. Yeah. And, and well, that's actually about the time that we left the Mennonite um, wow. church or tradition as well. And kind of the same as you. It's like this would be a, well, we wanted to raise our kids in the South. I was getting tired of the snow. It made sense for work. And where, where were then you guys? also upstate New York. Mm, that's right. And that's then right. also this, this dynamic of clean start. I was just sensing for some time kind of in my heart that maybe I wasn't the best fit, you know, with the Mennonite tradition um, or denomination or whatever. And and I just saw the there is a way to leave that and stay in the community. And then but there's there's cons to that, too. Like there's pros and cons. Yeah. And the, the idea of leaving to a kind of a, a new city entirely and not dealing with the community is um, that, you know, probably deserves a podcast all on its own, but there's, there can be some benefits to that. And I feel like we've experienced those. Um, it's hard, think, isn't it though? It's a bittersweet thing. Yeah, it is. Cause you yes. love your heritage, your community, your family. Yes. And when you step outside of that, I mean, how are they responding to you? Yes, it is a bittersweet thing. You're right. And they, um, my family and friends and so forth just responded very well. Um, they still love us and everything, but you know, as soon as you break the news, everything is different. Yeah. You know, you can feel that it's different. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, it's just how it is, you know, it's different. Like you were in and now you're out Yeah. and you know that immediately yeah. and no yeah. one has to tell you, but you know, um, I think for me, the, um, I'm not a super sentimental person. I don't, collect things. I don't keep things from the past that don't have great meaning to me. Like I'm not just in general, I'm not a very sentimental person. One of the things I'm learning about myself in the last few years is I do deeply desire this connection to my hometown, to my hometown's people, Mm -hmm. to the people that raised me growing up. And, and if I was still in the Mennonite tradition and had moved to Nashville and there was a Mennonite community here that I was part of, I would have a much greater tie back to my hometown and my heritage and my village that raised me, you know, but because we changed that, it, there's just not quite that tie back. And I miss that, you know, because I love those people still. And I know that they love me too. Um, 
it's just it's just different, you know. Yeah. And so I'm looking forward to, you know, the new heavens and and the new earth where we can sort of have those relationships like fully restored and not be complicated with um, what I would consider secondary and tertiary yeah. differences. Yeah. But in this life, um, you know, there there is a level of complexity that's brought in by some of those things. So you know, I agree with you. It is it is bittersweet. It's challenging. You know, a lot of my music, you know, all everything is integrated kind of into it. There's a lot of Mormon themes okay. in the music, but it's a universal Christian concept. Mm-hmm. And so even though I, I kind of, you know, so the catalog I sold in a way was very Mormon-based, mm. but a lot of the audience that listens to it are Muslim or really? Hindus, uh, they just connect. There's no words. Yep. So it's instrumental, so they connect. But then what I've been doing the last three years, uh, you know, when I got to Nashville, the first album I did was a Christmas record, and I thought, you know, I'd, it'd be nice to get a Christian artist, so I called up C.C. Winans people. Okay. And they accepted. And okay. I, I didn't know that was like a big deal to get C.C. Winans on a record. Mm. I thought, well, I'll just call her and get her. And and so I started exploring, working with some of these other artists. And we had Audrey Assad, who's a really incredible Christian. And I was working with Jim Daniker, who is Michael W. Smith's musical director. Mm. So I just thought that's what, what you do. You just call these people and you get them on your albums. Yeah. And um, I've since learned that's... <laughs> Not that's, everyone can do that. That's not really how it works. And like, yeah. I feel like God's just been like rolling out the red carpet. And sometimes I'm like, is it because I was tortured for so long? <laughs> or is it, yeah. Or be, but good things are really happening. And so like even this last record, I wanted to create an album. It's called The Broken Miracle. And it's kind of my story. But I wanted to create an album that explained that everybody's welcome to the table. Mm. we tend to say you're not welcome because you participate in this or you're part of that or you're Mm -hmm. affiliated with this. We draw lines in the sands. And, you know, there's this, we tend to think that the woman at the well that Jesus changed, that the uh, disciples and the apostles were totally on board with that. We fail to recognize that, um, at least me growing up, but I've, discovered this in the Christian world is that, uh, and Mormons are Christians, but the biblical Christian world is that, um, is that Jesus was teaching his apostles how to treat people who were Mm. different. Mm -hmm. So the woman at the well, he knew she was coming there. How did he know that? I don't know, but he waited. He waited. Meanwhile, these other guys, he sent them off into the city. You guys go do your thing. Why? Because he knew that if they saw him talking to a Samaritan, they would freak out. Mm-hmm. They came back and they saw him talking because they found out about it. Obviously, they wrote it down. Because Jesus had to teach them yeah. tolerance yep. and what real love and acceptance is. Yep. Same with the, the leper, the blind man. Even when he went into that pool of Bethsaida that was obviously some type of Hindu temple, goes in there and basically heals the man. A lot of the apostles didn't want to go in there with him. Mm. 
I'm not going in there. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a sinful place and this and that. And Jesus is trying to help them. So this album that I did, there are so many different people from such different backgrounds on the record, but we, it's a common theme. So I'll have Matt Hammett from Sanctus Real on the record. Mm-hmm. Thompson Square. Uh, David Archuleta, who's an LDS kid from American Idol. And then uh, Tyler Glenn, who's an openly gay alternative lead singer of Neon Trees, mm-hmm. who used to be Mormon. Okay. And then, so so you have everyone at the table. You, Ty Herndon, who's an openly gay country artist. And it's not for me to say, you can't do that or you can't be that. Yep, Exactly. And churches today continue to tell them, like Pharisees, what they can and can't do. Instead of trusting that Jesus made that person. Mm -hmm. Jesus will work with that person. Mm -hmm. Why are we trying to get in the way of Jesus' business? Mm -hmm. That's like us trying to intercept the woman at the well and go, look, 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 before you meet with this guy, you just need to know that you're you're on your seventh husband. That's that's a lot. Yeah. You know, he's not interested. Yeah. He's not going to, he's single Mm -hmm. for a reason. Okay. So don't even think about it. Mm -hmm. I can just see Peter because he's, don't even come near it. Uh, Yeah. Wow. You know, and he probably had a stick to measure. I never thought of it like that before. Yeah. So we like to go, well, this is what the Bible says about it. Mm -hmm. I've had so many different Bibles in front of me and it's like, well, they added that word. Tinsdale put that word here. Uh, Wycliffe put this word here. You know, John 8. Where was that in the, you know, 3rd BC? Mm-hmm. How come it didn't show up till the 9th century? You know, the Septuagint, all these things. Like, we automatically think we know. Yeah. But we automatically think we know because we were raised in, a lot of us, in a very particular type of tradition that's that's teaching a very particular thing and that's not all wrong it's just we have to recognize that sometimes the certainty that we feel we have about truth and what's right and it's like maybe we should um i'm not saying we should go out and explore and just be open to everything but we should make sure that we dig layers deep and not just kind of accept what we've always been taught must be most certainly true yeah. And yeah. sometimes it is. Maybe a lot of times it is. But um, I, I agree with you on... Well, first of all, I love that you're pulling in that variety of people on the record. That's really cool. I love to see that. It's different. Now, do you have this person sing this song and this person sing the next song? Or are they singing together? And, are, and by the way, are you just... You're going to like play the piano and compose and produce like this entire album? How, how does this all fit together with all these different people? Yeah, so I brought in a couple of people to help co-produce, but I normally produce the records. Okay. And I would, I basically knew that I wanted to write with each of these artists. So, for example, Matt Hammett, who left Sanctus Royal to focus on being a full-time father and husband, um, has a son with a defective heart just like me. So we Got connected and we yeah. met, and to me, he's like my father. I get to see what my father experienced through his eyes. Mm. And he gets to see what his son down the, 
wine has to deal with Mm -hmm. and how to kind of guide and I can kind of guide like you get some therapy here and here and there's no warning labels on the surgeries so make sure you do this and this and so I wanted to write a song called The Broken Miracle and it basically says my scars are beautiful you know your scars are your tattoos they're the ones that tell you you know your story Mm -hmm. and Jesus has scars and so anyone with scars should never be ashamed but should be glorifying God that he rose from the grave with his scars to say, this is my story. Mm-hmm. And you're all written right here, Isaiah 49. I've written you in the palms of my hands and my feet. Your walls or problems are continually before me. I see your hands are always in your face. Mm-hmm. You know, especially if you're living over by Italy, everyone's, <laughs> yep. so they were probably using their hands a lot. Yep. Didn't have utensils probably, but uh, so those, that kind of concept. But then like, Tyler Glenn, Tyler had left the, the LDS church and had written this very hateful album called Excommunication. And he ranted. He went off. And he has a song called One Man's Trash is Another Man's Treasure. So, you know, what you hold sacred has hurt me. Mm-hmm. And it's trash. And why can't you understand what is sacred to me? I see. So we wrote a song called, I Know It Hurts. And it basically says that it, you know, we were victims of the system. Mm. And it's cold on the church floor. Mm-hmm. So we pretty much are talking about the legalism in churches wow. that hurt people. Yeah. Okay. So you're co-writing these songs with these people. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And yeah. then they're going to perform also? And then they performed it. I yeah, so the album's wow. been out. The album's been out. But we did a Thompson Square. I wanted a country artist to do a ballad that kind of just told my story, the man with half a heart. Mm-hmm. So it plays out like a Towns Van Zandt. Uh, Bruce Springsteen lullaby of Kiefer Thompson just, you know, my life has been one problem and another, mm-hmm. <laughs> this and that, you know. The road is, but I asked the question, you know, can you love a man with half a heart? Because mm. those are the questions I had to ask in a relationship. Of course, yeah. Can you love me even though I'm going to die? Yep. Yep. Hmm. We're all going to die, but it's like... Yeah. You know, it's for my kids. It's for all that. You know, and then mm-hmm. um, with uh, Ty Herndon. Ty Herndon invited me to play Love Loud, which is a festival that Dan Reynolds from Imagine Dragons puts on. And Dan is Mormon. No way. Yeah. So Dan, uh, Ty, and Dan didn't know that I was living in Nashville and hanging out with Ty Herndon. Ty Herndon was the first country artist to openly come out in 2014. And I've seen him cry and cry and cry because he loves God so much. He loves Jesus so much and I've and he's hurting so badly because people are like, you know, you can't be gay and love Jesus. Do they also say you can't be gay and be country? <laughs> or <laughs> well, I don't yeah, that too because Or well, is that more back in fourteen and not so much now? Well, it's changing because love Jesus love. Mm. is taking root Mm -hmm. 
the Pharisees are losing the battle. Mm-hmm. Um, love will win. Mm-hmm. Um, there's accountability, you know, and morality has to be controlled. You know, just just sex out of marriage, sex out of a commitment, sex without God is wrong, period, whether you're heterosexual or homosexual. Exactly. Yep. And that that's what the scripture is trying to say, in my opinion, mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. that they were just doing whatever they wanted. Right. It was not a covenant relationship. They hadn't made a commitment. But, you know, these are things like Ty, Ty just wants, just loves his partner and wants to be with his partner. He didn't want to be with anyone else. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's all they're asking. Yeah. Yep. You know, so I can go and have all these affairs or whatever. I didn't do this, but I, you can go out and be heterosexual, have all these affairs. Yep. It's okay. You're yep. still in the church. Mm-hmm. You know, don't take the sacrament for six months or whatever. But someone who's gay just wants to be with one person. Yeah. They want love. And yep. so, nope, sorry. And somehow that's worse than you going out and having all these affairs. I totally agree with that. Um, what do you think it is about your music that has made it so successful? I mean, let's, I mean, you're being humble, which I really appreciate, but my gosh, I mean, you're the only person that's sold this um, catalog for that amount, for your type of music. That is a very big deal. Um, well, let me share with you what, let me share with you what one person, I saw this earlier today on my uh, Facebook page. Um, this woman basically had said, um, oh, got to get on the, off the internet. Basically was saying that there are so many, life is so loud right now. And that when she turns it on, she feels love. Whoa. So she, my audience and people that listen and they're very diverse, um, feel love for example probably one of the craziest emails i got it was this broken translated language from the middle east um google translate and it was from this kid who was born in baghdad and this was after the second invasion um so this was when we went back to iraq um i got this email from him going hey uh, my name is Aiz, and I was uh, in Baghdad living. My family was blown up by Americans, and uh, I need a job. I don't want to. I didn't want to live. I was so depressed, and I hated Americans. I took a job, um, thinking I might get back at him as a custodian on an army base. So he's sweeping the hall, and all of a sudden he hears this piano melody. So he comes around the corner and there's an officer listening to one of my songs. And right at that moment, he goes, this fire went right through me. And it was Allah. I was gonna kill myself that night. Allah told told me that he loved me and that I should live. And the song was called Redeemer. And the first lyric, there's no, there's lyrics because it's a traditional hymn, but there's no singing. So it's just mm. piano with a little bit of strings. 
And the first line is, I know my Redeemer lives. He heals, you know, and it goes on about how God heals you. So at that moment, Jesus, in his mind, it was Allah, took care of him. Mm-hmm. He, and God knew that man was hurting, put him at the right place at the right time. This is just like, I can't explain it to the lawyers in Nashville. Mm-hmm. I can't explain it to the the business aspect of it. It's just, it's God. It's God, and I, it's, I can't explain it myself. Yeah, that is so beautiful, man. To, you had to nearly give your life, I mean, nearly, nearly, multiple times, many times, that produced this beautiful art form that saved, well, we know at least this man's life. Yeah. And probably many others. Yeah. A lot of people. That is really, praise God. He's amazing. He knows every detail. The curriculum I've learned is customized for each one of us. So when a pastor gets up and starts saying, do this, this, and this, you've lost me. Mm. But when a pastor gets up and reads, like TJ, who is, you know, TJ Tims, for those that don't know, go back and listen to the podcast with him. But he's TJ, but he graduated from King's College. Mm-hmm. He's got PhD from one of the most prestigious Scottish schools. I mean, he's, my parents lived in Hyde Park, London. Oh, wow. They were missionaries at the LDS Visitor Center probably around the same time that TJ was going to oh, wow. finish it up. So I was out there all the time. So TJ's humble. Mm-hmm. I've never seen a, a pastor get up and just tell you, read what's in the Bible and then just give a background reference. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. He's not making a list and saying, here are the things you need to do. Yeah. Like a Franklin Day planner or Yep. Overwhelming you of to-do list. It's yes. like. Yep. Totally it's agree. It's like so <clears throat> refreshing. Yep. Yep. I totally agree, man. It's, it's one of the things I so appreciate about TJ and Emmanuel in general and the pastors there. Um, man, I am honored that you, your uh, agent reached out. I'm honored that you could be on this podcast, man. Thank you for your time. Yeah. Yeah, I'm honored. And, and thank you for still creating even if you don't have to, or you could slow way down, I'm sure. But you're still doing it. Like you're still, um, you're still like blessing is such a, I, you know, I'd rather find another word. You're still delivering life. Serving. You're still serving. You're still serving. And you wouldn't have to be, you know? And I just think that's remarkable. I think it's commendable. And I think it's beautiful. So I appreciate that. I don't like press golf. on, brother. You don't like what golf? <laughs> I don't, Dude, me neither. Man. I don't like golf. I'd be wasting my money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Find I'm happy to hear that because uh, I have friends that golf, but I never got into it. Um, yeah, but no, genuinely, man, keep keep doing what the Lord has gifted you to do. Keep pressing forward. It's uh, you know I think we all have a difficult journey, but there is joy in that process when we stop and are a little bit more mindful of Mm -hmm. what's going on because Mm -hmm. it's so easy to get caught up in the dynamics of, of 
the to do's and everything you have yeah. to get yep. done and all that stuff. So yep, that's right. Okay. Um, I have two final questions. One is what do you want to leave with the listeners? But before that, where can people go to find your music, your website? Where, where can people go to find you? So I've got two great assistants named Alexa and Siri. <laughs> so ask Alexa to play Paul Cardall. Oh yeah. Or Siri. Okay. Google it. Go to my website. Um, what is that? Uh, PaulCardall.com. Okay. Cardall I, is with two L's at the end. Yeah. C-A-R-D-A-L-L. Yeah. Yep. I've got a, so the music is on there. There's a, there's a new novel that's come out that kind of tells my story. Yes. The I saw Broken that. Miracle. And then we have a podcast. Okay. A podcast called All Heart. And we've had some fun guests. Awesome. Fun guests. And thank you for the shirt, by the way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, so that, all of that, they can find though, if they go to paulcardall.com. Yeah. C-A-R-D-A-L-L. Okay. okay. Awesome. Are you on socials too or not so much? Yeah. All okay. over. Yeah. Okay. I'm not a Twitch guy. <laughs> okay. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> That's like a so, game. Looks like Lincoln does. It's a know. game. It's a gamer thing. Oh, is it really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> YouTube. I, I, I think I just barely got on TikTok, but I, I, okay. TikTok is like painful. Yeah, I have never been on it. Um, okay, any final thoughts or thought you want to leave with the listeners? I just, I just, you know, I think um, with life, it's one day at a time, and don't try to get ahead of yourself. God's got amazing things He wants to do with you. Mm-hmm. Love it, Paul Cardinal. Thank you so much, brother. Yeah. Appreciate it. Yeah.